Last week we began uh, part one of what will be a three-part talk. And the week before we had talked about being an Acts 29 kind of church. In other words, a church that continues the New Testament commission given to us by Jesus to go and make disciples, a church and a people who have influence. And we said that the way we do that is that as each of us practice spiritual disciplines in our own lives, and as we allow the light, God to shine his light in our lives in all areas, as we allow him to show us where we need to change and grow, as we allow the Lord to change us more and more into Christ, that we're called then to let that light, the light of Christ, shine through us, and by doing that, we are being the church. Because church is something we are, not somewhere we go. Amen? We are the church. And so last week we introduced the title, Let It Shine, Let It Shine. And we talked about the first part is allowing God to, shine, to change us individually, which then leads to the second part where we gather together, we worship, worship Him, and we collectively let our lives shine as a church which is God's plan to redeem the world. And so we talked about how important and how essential that spiritual disciplines are and what happens if we don't make time for them in our lives. And so this morning, I'm going to recap some of that intro, and then I want to teach about each of the inner disciplines. John 3.21 says that he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So we come to the, we're in the truth, we come to the light, and our deeds, we begin to live in such a way that it's clear that what we're doing, the way we're living, has been done in God. We're called to be those who walk and live in the light, and our deeds follow as a result of that. The scripture says that the deeds have been done by God. In other words, people who live in the light are people who are used for God by his purposes, amen? And that's what each of us want to be. And so I shared with you my top favorite scriptures last week. I managed to get two of them into last, last week's sermon. And then if you were here on Wednesday, I shared another one at the midweek. And I'm going to share one of them now. And it seems simple, but scripture is often simple to memorize, but hard to live out. We like to make things complicated. Micah 6.8 says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We want to know the best way to live. Each person would agree with that. How, you know, how is the best possible way we can live? And what God, what God tells us is good. Not only that, he requires this of those who proclaim the name of Jesus. So he's, he's telling us what is good and he's requiring what what. what our lives should look like, what the life of a godly person should look like. And this light, life comes not as the result of our efforts, but of being people who practice inner spiritual disciplines, which is primarily just a way of drowning out the noise and allowing God to change us. That we be fair and just. That we fight for justice and stick up for the underdog. That we be merciful and show kindness and compassion that we care for others, that we live gracefully. And finally, to walk humbly with God. If we could only do that one thing, to walk with means continually to be aware of, to be aware of his presence, to adjust your life and your walk after the pattern that he has shown us, and to do so with humility. 
And the reality is we can't help but be humbled when we're walking in the presence of God. So godly people are those who stick up for what's right, those who are kind and compassionate, and those who walk with humility in the presence of the Lord. That's our goal. And so last week we said it begins, the first step is to allow God to do a spiritual inventory of our hearts. That we ask God to shine his light into our lives to show us our sin. We've said before that the gospel is only good news if we first know the bad news, which is that we are in desperate need for a savior. And so we said last week, David in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, and hopefully you've been praying this and, and hopefully you continue to pray it. Where David says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because unless and until we do that, we don't have anything to let shine. So, but once we do, the second part of the let shine begins to operate. So we said, let it shine, which is allow God to show you where you need to change to submit and to surrender, and then let it shine, allow your life be, to be an example uh, to others. And so this morning, we're going to get into those four inner disciplines, and then next week, we're going to look at the, the second half of the let it shine of, of living a life of service, living a life where we are publicly profess the name of Jesus, not just in what we say, but in how we live and how we treat one another. And so that'll be the, the end. Uh, next week will be part three, and we'll wrap it up. So this time we're going to dismiss our kids to South Coast Kids. Let us just pray. Father, we thank you for each and every young person and child here, God. We thank you for their lives. We pray that as they go down that you continue to to preach and minister to their hearts, God, that they know the love you have for them, the plan you have for them. Be with them. Protect them. Change them and keep them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ways that you prepare our hearts, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you give us hearts to obey, God. Father, you know the struggles and the difficulties represented in this room, God. You know exactly what we need. And so, Father, I pray that we would feel your power, your strength, your comfort, your peace even now. Peace that has little to do with what's going on around us, but everything to do with who lives inside of us. And so, Father, we, we pray that that peace continues to change us and Father, may we know the strength of that peace and may we, may we live lives that illuminate that peace to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a quick recap. Last week we said these are disciplines. Richard Foster calls these uh, the door to liberation. And we said that it doesn't sound like when you use the word discipline, that liberation, that those two things go together. We think of, of discipline as, as, you know, commitment typically as a negative thing. Uh, it's not a negative thing. In fact, it, it always had a positive connotation. Uh, initially, discipline was just about being focused and being committed. And so um, I love how Richard Foster calls these spiritual disciplines the door to liberation. Because we want freedom, we want to live our, our lives in, in a certain way, and at some point, and as we mature in our faith, that we realize that it's only through submission to Christ that we can experience real freedom. And so he said the four inward disciplines are meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, these inward disciplines, these things that primarily we do individually, alone. And then there's four outer disciplines, which are simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. 
which we'll talk about next week, the second part of the Let It Shine, and we'll look out the, the different um, needs and areas we have here for people to serve. And, and, you know, just to live, you know, sometimes we compartmentalize and we look at like our, our work life is, like, is different, and, but we don't have a work life and a church life and a family life. We have one life. And we should live all of it as with Christ at the center. So we're doing ministry as much when we're in our nine-to-five job as when we're in church on a Sunday or we're serving the homeless. There's no di- differentiation, uh, di- di- differentiation, something like that, right? There's no difference. Let's just say that. It's, no diff- it's much easier, right? So anyways, and then the four corporate disciplines are confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. And that's what happens when we gather together on Wednesdays and Sundays or for prayer times corporately. And so this is essentially about nurturing our souls. This is essentially about feeding our inner man, our spiritual food. And so we said that the biggest struggle each of us have is not necessarily with outward sin. It is. We do struggle with outward sin. But I think just as as much is the busyness that keeps our focus off of God. And so oftentimes we're on guard for sort of that big sin. You know, don't, don't do those big things that we know we're supposed to avoid. And yet we said last week we shared an excerpt from the book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, which if you haven't read is, is a very good book. But we, we shared just one paragraph. We shared a, an excerpt, but I want to just read this one paragraph, which was really the summary. And Screwtape Letters, if you don't know, is a, 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 it's a an uncle demon, and he's writing a letter to his nephew, who's a demon, telling him how to be the most effective demon, how to be you know, evil and keep people away from God. And so this was the main takeaway uh, that we read last week. We read a larger excerpt, but it says this. Do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, meaning God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones or signposts. Very deep. In other words, this, this uncle demon is saying, look, you don't have to worry about making you know, everybody sin with these big, grievous sins. All you need to do is keep their focus off of God. And that's so much simpler to do because they're really not on guard against that. You know, probably, I, I would say that it's probably his deepest work um, theologically. Screw tape lies. Very, very profound. But I stress that these habits shouldn't be looked at as a part of our lives as much as just an integral, um, they're woven into the fabric of each and every moment. They're integral to our everyday existence like food and water and air. These are things that we need. And so we said if we don't learn to develop the spiritual disciplines, we said we'll have little success trying to conquer sin in our lives. We said we'll, we'll likely grow weary in the doing good meaning we're much more likely to burn out as we serve or to become resentful or to lose love for people that we once had and we'll stop serving altogether, which I think I shared uh, uh, last week perhaps, but I read a, in a book that one, only one out of every 10 ministers is still serving in ministry a decade later, meaning nine out of 10 pastors who begin in ministry 10 years later have left the ministry altogether. I knew that statistics weren't good, but I didn't know that they were that dismal, and that's just heartbreaking to me. 
that, um, you know, and, and I think that is because, you know, you take your focus off of Christ. You don't allow him to fill you. And then what, what we're, you know, you're a lot, lot, a lot more likely to become resentful or to lose that, that first love. We also said we'll be living our lives underutilizing a resource that's so potent and powerful that will only be a fraction of who we could be if we did apply these spiritual disciplines. In other words, you won't be able to be the husband, wife, father, mother, sister, brother, co-worker, citizen. You cannot live anywhere close to your potential if you're not developing and maturing spiritually, if you're not connecting yourself intentionally to the word of God, to the love of God. We said you'll easily fall into wrong thinking about important things if you don't know what the Bible teaches. And in short, we said you will basically live life being more easily angered, frustrated, and impatient. You'll be more tired, weary, and worn out. You'll be less knowledgeable, less capable, more arrogant, less humble, more self-centered, less generous, and less fulfilled. Anybody want to sign up for that life? No, but we do when we neglect these spiritual disciplines. And that's the point, you know, I spent all, all week last week, and I don't want to do it again because I spent so much time that we didn't get into the disciplines, but it's so important that we realize. So Paul d- tells us we have a choice. We can live life in the spirit or we can live life in the flesh. And so if we choose to develop our spiritual lives, we begin to see what Paul shares in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, these are not things that we develop in our character as much as things we allow God to do as we give more to him, as we allow him to shine the light, as we prayerfully allow the word of God to transform us. You know, it's not about our self-directed effort of, I need to be more this and more that. That's true, but if we don't allow God to do it, that work in us, then we're just, it's just human effort. And when people say, oh, you know, it's hard to live as a Christian, and it's not hard to live as a Christian, it's impossible to live as a Christian. And once we realize that, we realize the need for Christ, and when we allow him to work in and through us, these things develop. And so he said, contentment, fulfillment, unity, cooperation, restfulness, happiness, those are the things that come with this type of living as an alternative to the self-centeredness and strife with living and living with a constant void of living in the flesh. And we said, Paul closed with this advice. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit and not become conceited, provoking or envying one another. Basically saying that as we live this way, we're constantly adjusting, that we're constantly taking a spiritual inventory, that we're constantly making changes, that we don't arrive, and that as we mature spiritually, if we do that with arrogance, and with comparing ourselves to others, we've missed what it's all about. And so this, this is primarily for our own spiritual growth. You know, I used to tell people I went from being a really arrogant atheist who would debate people and I would think that you know, I, would, I was more convincing in the debate and then I just became a really arrogant Christian who would debate people and think I was winning the debate. But somehow the gentleness and the humility and the whole point, I was more concerned with winning an argument than winning a soul, amen? We can get like that, right? We're more worried about people thinking like we do than, than uh, being, allowing them to be changed by the love of God. And so these four inner disciplines, meditation, uh, prayer, fasting, and study, what is most significant about things is the potential to change your life. 
I cannot overstate that enough. These things have potential to change your life in ways that are just unimaginable. Now, we need to expect opposition. You know, whenever we set out to do the right thing, there is a spiritual battle. There's an enemy that's opposed. But fight through it. Don't underestimate the results of living this way. I had a rough couple weeks. You know, and, and I'm not, you know, gonna, gonna stand up here and say, you know, because I'm a pastor or because I've been walking with Jesus for a long time, that every morning I wake up and my first thought is, I can't wait to read the Bible today. You know, don't get me wrong. I love the Word of God and I love to study, but some days, my wife's not gonna not be happy. I'm saying this. She was like, some days I just wanna like watch Judge Judy, a live PD, you know, just like 12 episodes in a row. Just shut my brain off and just sit there in front of the TV. I like Judge Judy because she just, you know, she don't, you don't get away with anything. She says, you know, she says, you can't lie to her. I like that. It's like, tell them, you know, anyway. So look, my guilty pleasure, right? But sometimes I just want to shut my brain off. I don't want it, you know, the enemies, just to be distracted. You don't need the word of God right now. You know, you're always reading. You're always studying. Put the Bible away. Just sit down and watch TV. But I had to preach three times. And so I had to be in the word. And don't you know that God just knows what we need and he loves us so much that sometimes, you know, against, I didn't want to read the Bible. I didn't want to study the word. I just wanted to shut my brain off. But because I had to teach, it forced me into the word. And, you know, what do you think that did? It encouraged me and it, and it gave me life. And I, I began to meditate. I think it's Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. And I just meditated on that again and again. What does that mean? means you allow the peace of Christ, allow that inner peace to rule, to completely control your heart, your emotion, your inner person. And that was it, as simple as that. Just praying that over and over again. Let the, you know, going through a rough couple weeks, just a rough couple weeks, wanting to just sleep 14 hours a day, depressed, you just didn't want to get up. And God forced me into the word. And so, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not separate from this. You know, just because you walk with God for a long time, some of this stuff, it doesn't get easy. The enemy still wants to keep us away from the word. He wants to keep us away from the Bible study and away from church and anything he can do to separate us from the things that are going to give us life. Now, I, so I was reminded of the promises of God and that was encouraging. I found strength and encouragement and peace and hope. So apparently last week I gave some erroneous instructions on how to make tea. So I want to make a correction. In an effort to try and speed up, apparently I said you dip the water into the tea, which perhaps somehow you could make it work, but you got the idea. The longer the presence of the tea bag in the water, the stronger the tea. So the goal was, you know, to get you to see the longer the awareness of and the focus upon the presence of Christ in your life, the stronger your light shines. Amen. So by the way, you know, you can feel free if I say something like that, rather than just mockingly laugh at my expense and I have no idea what's going on. You can raise your hand and point that out. We're all friends here, right? So I didn't know why everyone was laughing and Jamie told me after and I was like, that's nice. That's, I'm not that sensitive. It's okay. You can tell me. So anyway, a little corrections corner there. <clears throat> so Jesus declared in John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then we said later on in the ninth chapter of John, verse 5, he qualified it and he said, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then ultimately in Matthew 5, 
we said we see what happens as we follow him. Not only do we not walk in the darkness, but we have that light of life for others to see. In Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16 tells us, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So if we allow Christ to be developed in us, the goal is then that when they look at our lives, when they look at this church, that they glorify Jesus, right? And so these disciplines allow a way for Christ to be formed in us. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, he tells us, put on the full armor of God, so that when, not if, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. And he goes on to tell us to stand with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, with your feet fitted that comes from the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith, which extinguishes flaming arrows, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In verse 18, he says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers. Be alert and always keep praying for the Lord's people. So meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. I could preach a sermon on each of these things, but I want us to get a sense, and I want us to begin to incorporate them into our lives. So in no particular order of priority, they're all important, and they should all be done regularly. Meditation, so what does this mean? Finding a quiet place. It means clearing your mind of everything. And, and like I said, a word or, or a repeated phrase sometimes helps. Just saying the name of Jesus. You know, there's so much distraction and there's so much noise and we're always you know going so fast and we don't we don't even you know the the resting in the bible god didn't need to rest because he was tired the rest really means that he ceased you know working but but he did that as a as a an illustration to give us a pattern that you don't just always go that sometimes you need to rest and be filled up that there's a spiritual principle there and so, you know, we're, we're always going, we're always on the go, and, and the hardest thing is to, is to sit still and to sit quiet. I mean, when's the last time you just sat and tried to sit quietly in a room with no phone, with no TV, no noise, just sit quietly in a room? You know, you start to do it. If you're not used to it, it'll drive you crazy. It takes a long time to get used to be able to be comfortable with yourself in silence, and so this kind of meditation, this is, this, is a, you know, this is different than prayer. You can meditate on Scripture, but this is really trying to clear your mind of everything, trying to find that, that quiet place where you can drown out the noise. Like I, like I said with, with, with me, and it, wasn't, it was you know, partly meditation, but with that phrase of just let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, you know, I just would, would just prayerfully kind of just remind myself of that one Scripture, you know, We'll get into studying what that means, but, you know, meditating and praying on Scripture, you know, we don't need to always have, you know, you know, we read through paragraphs and, you know, it's great to read through the Bible in a year. All those things are wonderful, but the goal isn't to see how fast you can get through it, right? There's so much there, and sometimes we just take a small piece of Scripture and we meditate on that. We allow that to speak to us. You know, what is it saying? 
saying the name of Jesus again, to just quietly go someplace and just repeat the name of Jesus to yourself. This is not Bible uh, reading. It's not study. It's not prayer. It's not necessarily talking to God. It's finding a place of non-thinking where everything and everyone and just simply being aware of the presence of God. You know, I think we tend to think of this as like some mystical thing and we're so distracted by the noise and by our to-do list. And believe me, I'm a to-do list guy. I like spreadsheets and organization and I like, I like checking things off my to-do list as much as the next person. But sometimes we need to just be. You know, I've shared time and time again Psalm 46.10, which is be still and know that I am God. We, we're familiar with that. And in the NASB, which is the Bibles we have here in church, it says, cease striving and know that I am God. And I've shared with you before how much I love that phrase because it seems counterintuitive. Cease striving is kind of like stop trying. Well, no, we're supposed to try. We're supposed to produce. We're supposed to do. No, sometimes we're supposed to just be still in the presence of God, allow him to change us and speak to us. And there's things that we can't do. So sometimes that that you know sometimes our job is to just be still and just listen for his voice. We're so distracted. We need to focus. I think yesterday or the day before the devotion and I and my utmost for his highest was on simply being. You know, we are created in the image of God. And sometimes we need to simply be. Just be aware of it. This is not, you know, this philosophical mumbo jumbo to just be in God's presence. You know, how do we ever hear his voice if we're always talking, right? So meditation is to simply stop. You know, I think being outdoors is helpful. I was reading the other day um, about the, the difference being outside makes to people's mental health. And, you know, of course, they always do studies. Everything's a study. But how they're finding that people who are just, you're indoors all the time. You're never outside much anymore, and how just being outside and you know, going for a walk, not only the fresh air, not only is that good, but just being outdoors in nature about how that's linked to you know, having greater mental health. You know? And I mean, just little things like that that we, that we neglect. But go near the ocean, sit on a rock, take a walk in the woods. I've always loved Ned's point, but find a place and a practice of being alone. And again, not for five minutes. You know, regularly find time to disconnect. And by doing this, you're not wasting time. You're, you're, you're being energized. You're, you think of it as like charging your phone. You think of it, you plug your phone in and your phone's not doing anything. Well, if you don't do that, your phone's never going to do anything. So you're going to think of it as that. That's the recharge. That's where you just sit and plug in. You're not doing anything. You're not, you're not producing, but you're being recharged in the presence of God. And so, you know, again, we think this is optional stuff, but if you don't do this, you're going to burn out. I mean, we wonder why we're all so tired and we get, you know, we're so sick and we, you know, we're falling apart mentally and physically. And, and I've, I've preached before about how we're more connected than we've ever been in the history of the world, but we're more disconnected from God, disconnected from each other, and disconnected from creation than we've ever been in the history of the world. You know, when's the last time you just laid down in a, in a field or laid down on the ground and looked at the sky? Just looked up at the sky, you know, you're a kid, you do it all the time, right? When's the last time you looked at the sky? So deep breathing is also relaxed. Again, this is not, you know, not, you know, 
new age mumbo jumbo. This is existing in the presence of God, learning to breathe deeply, learning to drown out the noise, learning to focus on the presence of Jesus without praying, without reading the Bible. Those are separate things we're going to talk about. But meditating is just finding time to shut down, to be quiet, to hear the, the word of God. And then prayer. Prayer is simply communication with God. And so in this context, we mean your own prayer life. There's corporate prayer, there's praying with others, but this means being a person of, a person of prayer. This means not only talking to God, but listening to him too. You know, I've shared before where, you know, I used to work with this guy and every time I had a problem and I'd go to him, he would say, well, did you pray about it? And it got to the point where I would, you know, I said to him, you know, I should just put a string on your back and every time I go talk to you, I'll just pull the spring, string and I'll just say, did you pray about it? Because that's all the advice you always give me. And he said, well, it's good advice. And he said, no, I know it is. It's still annoying nonetheless though. Did you pray about it? Did you pray about it? So finally I get to the point where I think I'm doing pretty good because I'm praying, you know, a little more often. And so I go to this guy, and I'm, I'm waiting for it. The, did you pray about it, right? So he says, you know, hey, uh, struggling with this, you know, and did you pray about it? Yes, as a matter of fact, I've been praying for about a week. And he said, well, was it just talking prayer or listening prayer? Whoa, 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 whoa. What does that mean? He <laughs> said, well, when you're praying, you're just talking to God the whole time? I'm like, yeah, that's what I do. He's like, no, no, no. Have you listened? Like, oh, man, now I'm going to do a whole, right? But, so prayer is not just talking on it. It includes that. It includes praising the Lord. It includes, you know, petitioning the Lord for things. It includes asking God to change us, you know. In the garden, Jesus set the tone. He said, you know, if the situation can change, Lord, if you can, take this cup from me. But if not, y'all will be done. And that's the pattern of prayer. Hey, God, here's the situation. I'd like you to change it. But if not, do your will. If not, let me feel your presence in the midst of it. But we got to listen too, right? So prayer isn't just, you know, petition. It's okay. Sometimes people think you don't ask God for things. Of course you can. But sometimes prayer is just, you know, asking God for direction. You know, if you make plans and then you think God's going to rubber stamp that, stamp that, if you think you're already, you know, that's what sometimes we do. That's what I've done in my past. I've made a decision. And then because I want it to be godly, I've, you know, then gone and, you know, I'm like this kind of little popcorn prayer about it. I've already made my decision. God knows that. That's not the kind of prayer. We mean pray, ask him for direction. And if you, are, if you go to God and you're not willing you know, to, to change, if you've already decided, he knows that. This is inner disciplines where it's saying, you know, God, not only am I going to pray to you, but I'm going to, you know, change me. You know, when I say, you know, help God have your way in my life, that's a dangerous thing to pray. But that's what we got to be willing to pray. Have your way. Because maybe it doesn't look like we think it should look. You know, my life has turned out nowhere near like I thought it would be. And you know what? It's ten times better than I could have ever imagined. So sometimes, all, all, all the time, his ways are better than our ways. But sometimes in even little situations, if we seek the will of God. So it means, it means praying throughout your day. Praying before meals like you mean it. You know, thanking God for his provision. That's the point. Acknowledging all that he's done and all that he does. Having conversations with the Lord. Prayer is just communication. It's talking to a friend. Being aware that he's always with you. That he's a resource for strength and peace and direction. 
I was sharing the other day, I think Wednesday night, and somebody was saying, you know, every time I pray, it's so easy to get distracted, and, and that happens to everybody. And so I found that even if you're alone, sometimes what's helpful is if you pray out loud, even if you're by yourself, because by speaking and praying out loud, sometimes it helps, you know, with the distraction. And I used to say, you know, I used to drive all the time and with commuting, and I'd always be talking to myself, and people would think I'm crazy, but now everybody's got cell phones, and now you can get away with it. So people aren't going to be on the side of you thinking you're a crazy person talking to yourself, because everybody's doing that now, right? But speak out loud, you know? Having conversations with the Lord. Pray for others. Pray for your family, your coworkers. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. When's the last time you really prayed for an enemy? And listen, you know, I can't tell you enough how, you know, this, this stuff is, is real. It makes a difference. I forced myself to pray for people that were the last people on earth I wanted to pray for. You know, like, I mean, I, and just force yourself to do it. And you begin to see people the way the Lord sees them. And, you know, you begin to see people and, and the way the Lord loves them. And, and, and he, got, he begins to give you a heart. And I don't, you know, I don't have the time to go into story after story, but there's been so many times. You know, there was just one instance where there was this guy and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stand the guy. We never got along and finally, I got to the point where it was either, you know, I was going to punch the guy in the mouth or I was going to pray for him. I had, that to do one or the other. It was getting, you know, and so I got, you know, and I, and I prayed and, and, uh, and I, you know, God just began to kind of give me, you know, a little bit more of an open heart. And so the next time I saw him, I tried to just start this little conversation. And through that conversation, he had shared with me that his son, he had a teenage son, I even know he had a son that had been killed in a drive-by about three and a half, four years before he, you know, he ended up in Teen Challenge. This was there. And, uh, you know, and here I am. You know, maybe that's why the guy's a little bit angry. You know, maybe that's why he's going, I had no idea. I can't imagine that, right? Losing a child. But that, you know, through prayer, that opened up me being willing to talk to the guy and have a conversation and to see the humanity. You know, we, it's so easy to label somebody and to write them off and to decide, you know, who they are and, and push them aside that's not what God does with us. God loves us when we're at our worst. We are at our ugliest, lowest points. And the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So pray for your enemies. You know, nothing's going to change that kind of, you know, love wins. Nothing's going to change that kind of, you know, enmity and strife other than prayer. The Bible says, pray without ceasing. Pray before decisions. Pray for an increased faith. Pray that God would change you daily in the midst of struggles. Pray for a hunger and thirst for his word. You don't like reading the Bible? Ask God, pray to God. God, I don't, you know, give me a hunger for your word. Give me an increased faith. Pray for patience. Be careful. Pray for patience. It's like pray for humility. Be careful some of these things. You pray, God will, you know, God will do these works in you, but. And then Fasting. Less common than the other disciplines. But if we look at the list of biblical people who fasted, Moses, David, Elijah, Esther, Daniel, Jesus, the apostles, Paul, just to name a few. Now nowhere in the Bible is fasting commanded, yet you see the prevalence of it throughout Scripture. John Wesley made this observation. Some have exalted religious fasting beyond all Scripture and reason, and others have utterly disregarded it altogether. And I think that that's a true statement. Throughout the New Testament, fasting and prayer are often mentioned together. 
When seeking direction in Acts 13.3, they fasted and prayed. In Luke 2.37, a widow worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. So fasting is, is giving up food primarily in the Bible, but or something else. It's giving up something for a period of time in order to focus your thoughts on God. So it's simply, fasting is simply a scriptural way of seeking God's presence. Many people while fasting will read the Bible, they'll pray, they'll listen to worship. It's found throughout the Old and New Testaments. It's mentioned over 50 times in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it was often a way of expressing grief or a means of humbling oneself before the Lord. In Psalm 35, 13, it says, David humbled himself with fasting. In the New Testament, it was a means to grow closer to God through meditating and focusing on him. In Matthew 4, we see the beginning, Jesus went to the wilderness to fast for 40 days. Not only does fasting and prayer help us focus on God, but through that time, it brings us closer to him and it changes our hearts. When we fast and pray, we're taking time away from a meal or from an activity to devote our, to devote our entire being to focus on God. And if you've ever fasted, the way I can describe it is you seem to just be more sensitive to the voice of God, more attuned to hearing what he has to reveal to us. Um, too often our focus is so much on the temporal that we don't even see the spiritual realities. You know, that things are happening around us and we, we're so focused on the situation or what we see in this realm, we don't even ask God to give us spiritual eyes. What is it he's trying to show us or teach us? You know, the first time in my life I ever fasted, I'll share this one, one thing with you. First time ever in my life. And, you know, you don't fast so you can tell everybody about it. The Bible's clear about that. It's not about, you know, denying yourself for the sake of it. It's about denying yourself to grow closer to God. It's about saying, you know, I want to focus on Him. I want to... So, first time I ever fasted in my life, I was at Teen Challenge. And now my wife and I never in our lives ever have we had a discussion about fasting. Never once did we talk about fasting. Never once had we, ha- had we fasted. Ever. And all, you know. So I'm in Teen Challenge, and, you know, I was going to fast for three days. And so I was praying, and they were just drinking water. And, and, of course, you know, it's a spiritual struggle. So that night was the second night, 48 hours, which is the hottest part of three-day fast. The hottest 48, the first 48 hours are the hottest. So I'm at that 48 hour, and at, at, I'll never forget, they were making steak fries and chicken sandwiches. <laughs> like, I love steak fries, man, let me tell you. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And I'm, you know, I'm tired. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to beat myself up over it. This is the first time I ever fasted. It, it was a, you know, I felt, you know, closer to God. I had some things I was, I was wrestling with. And, uh, you know, I made up my mind. I'm going to, I'm going to end the fast. You know, I'm going to, so I decide, you know, so I have a phone call with my wife that night and she says, you sound exhausted. Well, I am exhausted, you know, and I said, actually, I, I was fasting for a couple of days. I said, I'm, you know, I'm stopping. I'm going to eat supper when our phone calls over. I said, but I just decided I would fast. And she said, well, when did you start? And he said, I started, you know, two days ago. And she said, <laughs> getting all, even now I get, you know, this was 10 years ago. And she said, I started fasting two days ago. Now, I mean, we never talked about it, never did it, anything at all. But it was like God saying, you know, even though you guys are separate right now and you're, that, you, you know, you're a couple that I'm building you both up. And that was it. I said, man, I'm going to commit and I'm going to finish that fast. And, you know, it was God would just, you know. No, it was, it was powerful to me. And, you know, I, I did. I finished the fast. And, 
I say that to say, you know, that doesn't mean that every time you fast, God's going to do some, you know, special supernatural thing. But I will promise you that it'll help you to focus on him. It'll help you to hear him. And as you, as you, you know, discipline yourself, as you, you know, go through that period, your goal in all these things is to get as close to the heart of Christ, as close to the mind of Christ, as close to the will of Christ as you can get. And so the theology of fasting and all these spiritual disciplines are just a theology, a theology of priorities. It's essentially us giving the opportunity to express ourselves with an undivided and intense devotion to the Lord. It's saying right now I'm going to focus not so much on the physical but on the spiritual. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18 is an encouraging verse. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on not what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In Zechariah, the people had fasted regularly and yet had many troubles. So they sent the priests and they asked about their fasting. And we're given the same kind of direction. If you read Isaiah, um, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 58, it's all about fasting. And this, their fasting wasn't so much about refraining from food, but it was supposed to be about extending yourself for the sake of others. Fasting is so you can focus on the Lord so that he changes you so that you can be a light. That's the whole principle of everything. So in Zechariah 7, verse 4 through 6, it says, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And when you eat and drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Dispense true justice, Practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. So in other words, they had a situation. They were fasting. They weren't fasting for God. And the reason that that was evident is because they fasted and then they continued to live evil. They continued to be self-centered and abuse the people around them. And so God's saying, you're not fasting for me. Because if you were fasting for me, for me, the result of that would be you'd be kind and compassionate. So that's not the kind of, of fast. And what's wrong with that kind of fast is that it left the sin in their lives untouched. If any of these spiritual disciplines leave the sin in our own lives untouched, we've missed the primary reason for them. I want to say that again. If fasting or praying or meditating or reading the Bible leaves the sin in your life untouched, then you're missing the point of it. Because all of the Christian life is a battle against the ongoing sin in our lives. And if we're complacent, believe me, the enemy gets a stronger foothold. So the only authentic fasting is fasting that includes a spiritual attack against our own sin. The only authentic prayer is prayer that includes an attack against our own sin. The only authentic worship is worship that includes attack against our own sin. And what the text emphasizes is that our actions on Monday is a test of whether we're really intent of attacking the sin in our, in our lives. In other words, if our spirituality on Sunday is authentic, if our fasting and our prayer and our worship on Sunday is authentic, the way we live our lives on Monday will be a test of that. 
We may not always succeed as fully as we would like, but we will fight our sin on Monday if our fasting was true on Sunday. You have about 168 hours in a week. Say you sleep out eight hours a day, that leaves you 112 hours a week. If you work 45 hours a week, that leaves you 67 hours. And that time you have to eat, do chores, so let's say that's five hours a day, that leaves you 35 hours, so you have 32 hours left. I'm, I'm, you know, some of you got more, some of you got less. What I'm saying is basically you have about 32 hours in a week. Sunday service is about two hours max. What are you doing with the other 30 hours? What are you doing? Because we said we don't have time. I mean, you break it down. So 2% of your spiritual life is here on Sunday. What are you doing the other 98% of the time? Because these spiritual disciplines, I can't do them for you. What I can promise you is that your spiritual growth, your spiritual maturity, people say, and I've said this a million times, you say, I want to be effective for God. And the equation is, the more you surrender, the more effective you are to God. That's the equation. It's as simple as that. It's not the more talented you are, the more ability, the more money, the more resources. That's, that, that's not it. The equation is the more you surrender to him, the more effective you are for him. The thing is that we're afraid to do that. If you get a lunch hour, go for a walk, meditate. We have different schedules and cycles, but we must find a way. And the reality is, most of us, if we're honest, we find a way to do the stuff that's important to us. Most of us find time to do the stuff we love to do. It's just we don't see, the, we don't see what's important here, and the enemy's convinced that this is optional. If we are to fast and pray for revival in our region or in our churches, we have to pray for a true spiritual renewal in our own hearts. It means we must pray for our own holiness in our lives as, the well, as well as in the lives of others. And we follow up with action or we're just performing empty spiritual exercises like the Pharisees that God rejects. In this church, we need direction. There's a lot of changes happening and we pray for you regularly. And I sincerely ask you, pray for me and my family. Pray for Pastor Jamie and and his family. And I know you do. Pray for the leadership. As always, we need continuous direction. We want to do what the Lord would have us do. We're not going to decide and then ask the Lord. We're going to ask the Lord what what he'd have us do. Although fasting in Scripture is almost always fasting from food, there are other ways to fast. Anything given up temporarily in order to focus your attention on God is considered fasting. A fast. Okay. Um, if you go to the doctor with this problem and he gives you medicine, he tells you to do physical therapy, your strength, your healing, your growth, your restoration are directly tied to how faithful you are to what the doctor tells you to do. If you don't take the medicine and you don't do the physical therapy, nothing's going to change. And it's like that with our spiritual lives. Just showing up is not enough. So... If we can spend hours watching TV, hours on social media, and we spend minutes a day with the Lord, we need to we need to change that. We need to stress that. And I, you know, I don't want to go too far off on this topic, but I've you know stepped away from Facebook. Very rarely am I on now, and you know I delete it from my phone. And you know everybody, I'm not saying everybody does got to do this, but you don't realize how much of a distraction that can be, and how healthy. I mean. It's like freeing to just take a moment. You know, when Jamie's on vacation, I challenged him. I said, see if you can stay off social media the whole 10 days. Because it's, you know, sometimes we're so connected 
you got to disconnect for a little bit. And, and so, you know, I would encourage you to look at that. And finally, study. Personal study. Again, this is not about being in a Bible study. This is not about taking a class. Those things are studying. The point is that you should be familiar with Scripture on your own. I mean, I can't stress enough how important this is. Too often, when we want the biblical answer to a problem, we ask someone who we think knows more than us or who we think is more spiritual than us. Or we go online. And while those things are helpful and beneficial sometimes, we should each have time where we read Scripture, not just devotionally as we pray, but meditate and study the Word. Being a Christian means Jesus is your teacher, and I cannot do your homework for you. Now, I've heard people say, well, I don't like to read. I don't read. I don't like to study. And I get that. But to neglect studying the Bible, I mean, there's audio Bible, even that, that's not instead of study. That can be along with, especially helpful if you drive, you know, you have a commute, there's an audio Bible. But not everyone is expected to be a scholar or a theologian, but you are expected to know the Word of God. If you believe that God wrote the Bible for us, we ought to try to learn how to read it. And there are rules, there's a science to it. I'm not going to go too far. We've talked about that before. One of the things we'd love to do here is to have an adult Sunday school before church with some teaching. That's one of the things we don't have the space to do. But I'd love to have that kind of a teaching, you know, how to read the Bible kind of thing. A lot of tools out there to help. More resources than ever before. Study Bibles are great. Commentaries. But we ought to look things up on our own rather than relying on other people all the time. And I've seen people who could barely read, people who just barely had a GED, weren't educated, and as they read the word more and they prayed more, like anything, they had more understanding. They were able to develop better study habits. They were able to memorize things they thought they could never memorize. You know, some, every process is different. Journaling can be helpful. Taking notes. The point is to have the Word of God in your heart. And in order to do that, you need to read it regularly. Not just for the benefit of ministering to others. That's certainly part of it, to let that light shine. But also to allow the first light to shine in you. To know what godly living looks like. To know what the Bible teaches. And if you don't know the Word well enough, you will be deceived. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul is giving guidance to his spiritual son, the young pastor Timothy. And verses three and four says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now I imagine every time some pastors read that throughout the centuries, he's probably said, it's never been more like that than it is today. But I echo that sentiment. It's never been more like that than it is today. Because everybody can say, I'm a Christian, or I'm a pastor, or this is a church. And that doesn't mean that they teach anything that resembles biblical Christianity. But if you don't know what the Bible teaches, if you don't know that the Bible is the ultimate authority, then how are you going to guard against false doctrine? How are you going to stand for the truth in your life? It's not optional to know what Scripture says. The Bible contains the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. People say, oh, that's nonsense. It's foolishness to them, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
I would say, and this is, I'm going to start closing up with this. If not the, it's certainly one of the biggest problems with the church in America is biblical illiteracy. We don't know what the Bible says, and so we believe the lie that it means different things to different people. Well, it's all a matter of interpretation. Listen, on the major teachings, there's massive agreement. You cannot make the Bible say what you want it to say. So while there are some things that people see differently, there's massive agreement on the major teachings of Christianity, and there has been for hundreds of years. And so you watch some of these specials on TV, and you have people think that there's been new discoveries, or the Bible, we, we just discovered the Bible says this, it's not your opinion. We, in Teen Challenge, we say, you don't have the Burger King Bible. It's not do it your way. That's not how it works. It's what Scripture says. And it's more clear. And oftentimes there's an agenda by people who call themselves progressive. And that's not Christianity. It's regressive toward a man-centered and revisionist gospel. So to guard against deception, to guard against sin, we need the word of God. As we read before, Paul tells us it's our spiritual weapon. And it's the only weapon that's both offensive and defensive. When Paul tells us to put on the armor of God, it's all defensive in nature except for the word of God that's his offensive. God created us in his image. We need not try to create him in ours. Only a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and all-good is worthy of worship, and Jesus is all of those things. He is the very essence of truth, holiness, knowledge, power, joy, His light and only his light is life and all else is simply distraction. There is only one gospel with the power to save. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul knows, let it shine, let it shine. And we see in verses 9 through 11, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That's who Paul was. But, verse 10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Because Paul allowed the grace of God to radically transform his heart, Nothing he did, but knowing he was the recipient of the light of Christ. Verse 11, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Paul's saying he allows that light to shine through others by preaching the truth, and the church of Jesus Christ, we're called to do the same. I'm going to ask the worship team to start to come up, and just wait on the side for a minute. I'm going to show a quick video, and then we're going to close with a song. But I just want to make these few final points. The point of spiritual disciplines is not legalism. It is not self-punishment. It is not so we can compare ourselves to others. In fact, that's why I love when Foster calls them the doors to liberation. Spiritual disciplines do not restrict. They give life. And I promise you will see that you are missing out if this is not part of your routine. This is a very short list of what practicing spiritual disciplines in your daily lives will do. They will help you hear from God. They will reveal your hidden sin. They will strengthen your intimacy with God. They will teach you to pray with right motives. And they will build your faith. Spiritual disciplines allow the light of Christ to enter in. 
to show us our sin, to change our hearts, and then to allow us to be vessels whose lives shine through to others so they too can see the light of Jesus no matter how dark the world around them may be. I want to close with the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise and his glory will be seen upon you. May people continue to see the glory of the Lord when they look at the lives of each of us here at South Coast as we continue to encourage each other to fall deeper in love with Jesus. Amen? We're going to see a short little video and then the worship team is going to come up and close with the last song and we'll be dismissed. Hey, we're almost done. Just hang in there a couple more minutes. Here's the most important thing about this service. The point of this service and every service we do here is simple. It's never meant to be an end, but a beginning. There's a feeling of conclusion you have right now in your heart. We know it. It's not bad. It's not evil. It just needs to be divinely transformed into a belief that says, when this service ends, my Christian faith begins. You see, the point is not to only receive all that this church has to offer. The point is to receive it, then give it away during the week. The point is not to make our church more exclusive, but to make Jesus available to everyone we brush up against. The point is not to pit the sacred against the secular, the Sunday against the Monday. The point is to see all of life, our church lives, our business lives, and our family lives as divine opportunities. The point is not for you to get caught up in your own story. The point is to become fully alive to the grand story that God is telling through you. Here's the point. Church is not about church. It's about living outside these walls. By the way we interact with people, we can and we will become the aroma of Jesus. And people won't just hear it, they'll feel it. They'll feel that their lives are not hopeless because you stink of hope. They'll feel the companionship of the Almighty because you are walking with them. And they'll feel some for the first time in their lives the sweet aroma of being loved. So go, be loved by God, and give that love away freely to all, because there are people in your current circle of relationships 